Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Eric Lang. Eric is a legendary game designer and somebody who's made a ton of games that I love to play on a regular basis. His games include the Game of Thrones card game, the Cthulhu card game, Couriers, Blood Rage, and countless more. He's been a part of many highly successful Kickstarters and has a lifetime worth of wisdom to share when it comes to game design. I always love talking with Eric about design. We do it whenever we get to see each other at conventions, and it's been awesome to actually finally get to share those lessons here in the podcast. Uh, And he taught me some new things uh, for sure, which I think you're going to love on this podcast. I think you will see a lot of interesting things about the way that he tests games and the way that he processes feedbacks, the way that he's learned to teach other players and other designers how to make games better, and the way that he has this very interesting self-retrospective and very analytical approach to things, which I always really appreciate. We also spend a fair amount of time talking about Kickstarter. Uh, As some of you may know or may not know, uh, by the time this episode goes live, we are very close to launching our own Ascension Tactics Kickstarter, which is going to highlight not only 10 years of Ascension's history, but launch in a brand new miniature deck building hybrid game that takes the best principles that I've learned over the years from both my time working on the World of Warcraft miniatures game, as well as the decade of Ascension, uh, to make something that's truly new and awesome. And it's been very exciting for me to be able to finally go back to Kickstarter after many years. So hopefully you guys will go check that out. Um, But Eric, as one of the most successful designers ever, as far as total revenue earned on Kickstarter for games that he's worked on, uh, gives a lot of really great lessons. So for anybody out there that's deciding whether or not you want to make your games and launch them on Kickstarter or publish them, he has a ton of great insight in that. And, you know, it's just one of those things where these kinds of conversations are why I started the podcast. I learned a ton from this episode. I always do whenever I have a conversation with Eric, and I know that you will as well. So without further ado, here is Eric Lang. Hello and welcome. I am here with Eric Lang. Eric, it is awesome to get to talk with you. Yeah, you too, Justin. I'm, I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah, you know, you you and I have been friends for for many years, and we've had a ton of great game design conversations over those years. But you've been kind of my uh, my white whale for this podcast. Uh, I've been I've been trying to chase you down uh, to get you on here for some time. So I'm glad I finally uh, finally got you here. Oh, that's great. I love being a white whale. um so you know i uh i always start these conversations the same way uh you know most of our audience is probably going to know who you are but uh, you know how did you uh become eric lang what got you into the gaming industry and and kind of brought you your career to where it is today just kind of brief overview sure sure so um i i have a reader's digest version right so that that it starts with magic the gathering as a lot of things do i've already been a gamer at that point for five years but when I started playing Magic in 1993 uh, with Beta Edition, that that was the thing that woke me up. I was like, I knew I was a gamer, but this made me go, I want to design games for a living. Uh, it was like, without even seeing interviews, without seeing any, um, without reading any of the behind the scenes, I could tell instantly that this was a game, this was a wonderful piece of art that was also created with um, a massive amount of discipline and, uh, well, passion and discipline. 
And I was like, you can really make a career out of this. So I did. Of course, now I'm 47 years old, projecting into my 19-year-old self, right? A lot more uh, wisdom than it than than exists, but uh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Anyway, it starts there. Yeah, no, life life's a lot easier to tell a, a coherent story in retrospect than going of forward. Course. <laughs> of course, of course, of um, course. So between uh, 93 and 97, I think I sorry 93 96, I designed like I don't know 17 collectible card games. I just every Every role-playing game campaign I'd ever had, every uh, every IP, every property I was interested in, everything that I designed, um, every story that I'd ever told, licensed off my own books, my own poetry, my own music, all the stuff I'd done in the past, I just went for it. Um, most of them were absolutely terrible. They were creative, but terrible. Uh, and um, then I started getting, um, I, I did the... I did the thing that most people say you shouldn't do, and I just went right ahead and uh, contacted TSR, uh, who was the uh, original publisher, of course, of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I just said, you know what? You guys have this IP called Chronomancer that I think is really cool. Uh, time uh, I want to make a time-traveling card game. And I just submitted it. Here you go. Um, now, <laughs> I got, the, I, I got the, the, the rejection letter that every young... Uh, every young, infinitely wise game designer doesn't want to hear. This like this sounds like a neat idea, but your game is horrible. <laughs> uh, that's it. So, in defiance of that rejection letter, uh, I went and uh, contacted almost every publisher I could uh, back when um, IRC was the main uh, chat channel for the internet. Uh, I accidentally found uh, somebody from FASA. At the time, Fasso, of course, being the original publishers of Shadowrun, of uh, Mech Warrior. Yeah, yeah, I had um, uh, I had Jordan Weissman on the podcast uh, earlier. He's, he's oh, amazing. Jordan's incredibly brilliant. Uh, yeah. Of course, the, the person I met was not Jordan. Uh, yeah. It was actually the art director of Fasso at the time, who was the lead designer of the collectible card game for Shadowrun. Um, and he was talking about the card game, and of course, I didn't know who it was. So he was talking about the card game. I was like, oh, that, this looks really bad. This looks terrible. <laughs> um, this is this is how you should do it. And of course, in my in my brash overconfidence, um, I actually I guess I actually sounded knowledgeable. And he said, "Well, why don't you do some playtesting for us?" Which I did for several months. Parlayed that into a development gig uh, where I redesigned a bunch of the cards and um, gave him some direction for expansions. And voila, I was in credit in a uh, in a FASA book. That was the point where I realized I can do this for a living. So let, what what is now the timeline between, so you discover magic, you decide I'm going to be a game designer, you start working on games on your own, to the, what, how long from there until you submitted your game to TSR? Two, uh, my memory is a little fuzzy here, but it's about two years. About two years from there, and then from the uh, the rejection letter, where now you're you're sure that you're a genius and they just don't see it to the <laughs> yeah. point where <laughs> I know we've all been there. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then from there to the point where you uh, start doing uh, free kind of dev work for, for FASA is how long? I believe that was 90. I believe that was 96. Okay. And then, and then from there till when they actually was hired you on uh, to give you do paid work. So they never did. Huh. <laughs> so no. Nope. Great. Okay. Um, so uh, what? What? But um, I mean, the credit was I did it all for credit, right? Um, and yeah. You know yeah. What, okay. We know everybody says don't work for exposure, and you shouldn't. Uh, but I did. 
So no, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I have a different, I have a different take on this. I mean, I really do think that like people make a mistake when they worry about making money too early in this industry that like, and it's echoed of almost every successful designer that I talk to that they do a bunch of work for free because they love it because they want to get involved because they just can't stop themselves. And then once they sort of get their feet, you know, under them and understand what they're doing, then it's much easier to start making money and, and, you know, really doing things. So I, I go against that, that frame. I think doing things for free is the best way to, to actually make a living. Uh, and I agree with you, but, but, but you and I are sort of uh, entrepreneurs at heart, which we can talk about a little later. And I think that that's part of the, the entrepreneur DNA. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, so, so they didn't, um, so, they uh the, the card game uh collapsed relatively quickly i think they did two expansions and they were out um while that was going on of course i had to work right so i was um i took a job at a uh at a retail store at a, at a hobby game retail store um and i was managing it and was running their tournaments and of course i was a big magic fan so i was uh, i mean obviously played magic most of the time but i but i really um even though i was doing it just to to earn money i was actually uh, getting the best possible education I could. I got to see how um, I, I got to get get a real deep dive into how gamers view, discuss, and uh, critique games in their natural environment, or as close to their natural environment as as we'll ever get to. Um, sure, and, you're you're like you're like you know studying the apes in the wilderness. You know, you get to see <laughs> this is this is the true natural form. This right. is how they interact. Well, and the thing I was doing it kinesthetically too, right? Like I was I was I, I didn't have a plan, right? I wasn't sitting there with a lab coat going and, and making meticulous notes. I was just observing it and um and just taking it in. And the thing that the the biggest it was a it was a very grounding experience, right? Because I I would bring some of my designs in and they get brutalized, unbelievably brutalized, of course. Right, mm -hmm. because uh, people who come into a retail store, they have absolutely, they have no motivation to be uh, to be encouraging to you, right? They're, they're, yeah, in fact, the counter motivation that people uh, show their how smart they are by criticizing. That's uh, true. Things. That's true. <laughs> um, uh, luckily, I learned to avoid some of those relatively <laughs> relatively early. But I just got I I got to I got a real taste of just honest feedback from people with purest motivation. The only thing I want is to have fun at this game. Why are you not letting me have fun? May, may I ask? Because this is often a point where a lot of people have trouble, right? You start getting, you know, you got rejected by TSR. You get round after round of negative feedback. People telling you your game's garbage. You're doing this, you know, while you're there all summer. You've been working on this stuff for years and not making a living doing it. What kept you going? Like, what what, 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 what do you think kept you driving to, to keep improving and, and, and standing up in face of criticism and, and, and rejection and things like that? So... Uh, there's two answers. The, the, uh, there's the answer I have in the, that I would have had in the moment, and there's actually the, the the more contemplative answer that I have now, looking back into it um, after doing some self reflection. So in the uh, in the moment, right, I would have told you, uh, well, no, this is my career. I need to do this. It's my compulsion. I'm a creator. Uh, every every hobby, everything I've ever been passionate about, has always culminated in uh, in the act of creation for me. Uh, like when I was a kid, I, I listened to a lot of music. So of course I became a musician. I, I read a lot of books. So I wanted, I instantly became a writer. I watched a lot of TV. I wanted to be a TV writer. So that, that's just how I am. That's how I'm wired. Um, in the, my, my present self looks at it in the same way. I actually heard, uh, I, I heard Jerry Seinfeld put this very articulately. Um, and it resonated really home with me. Um, I think it was, during his special 
uh, one of the HBO specials, he was just discussing his crap. Um, he basically put, he said uh, that he is the comedian's weakness. Um, and w when he is uncomfortable, when there's no laughter in any situation, I realized right then that's actually what, that's my issue. Um, I have the game designer's weakness. In any social situation, I'm deeply uncomfortable when people are not having fun. Anybody, if anybody's not having fun um, in a situation, then I feel that the I feel compelled to rectify that through any tools available to me at the time. Um, that's where a lot of my games come from to create fun where there is none in the moment. Um, that's where that's where the artistic part of it comes. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so I just I just felt driven. I had to do it. Like it didn't matter what it didn't matter how many times people told me I was wrong. It just means I have to do it better. Um, that is a very romanticized look backward. Of course, I, there's a there was an element of defiance to it as well, right? Like I'll show you guys. Well, sure. Anytime everyone's uh, greatest strength is also their greatest weakness, you know, and that, right. that that sort of relentless drive that can serve you super well in some cases can, you know really have negative effects in others. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, again, yeah, I've been doing this as long, get a little older, start getting into your forties, you start to, you know, get a little bit more of a perspective and appreciation that, yeah, okay. You know, I, I it, it all comes in this, this sort of mixed bag and when you can leverage it in the right way, it's fantastic and could lead to great careers. And if you get lost along the way, it can, it can be a real problem. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to be able to have both those perspectives of what was it like then? And, you know, again, for a lot of our listeners where they're sort of in the thick of it, and and also being able to know that you know down the road what is it that's going to matter to you what is it that you're going to learn along the way is is I, I just find really fascinating. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there was a I would say it of course in the moment at the time the uh, the emotional component was much heavier, right? Um, mm -hmm. It was it was a need. It was an absolute need. I was not happy unless I was in the act of um, designing some some kind of game. And of course. Um, I was also fatally overambitious in everything I did. I was never able to just uh, do the thing that they say in, in game design school: start small, start take take tic tac toe, change a rule, write so, like write the rule book for uh, hopscotch or anything like that. Like do these incremental steps in order to learn. I said no, screw that. I'm making a collectible card game. Like nope, TCG. Starting on a TCG. <laughs> exactly yep. right. Starting on that. Like um, and the. Um, one of the pivotal moments at, uh, during this period after FASA, I went, I decided I'm just going to start going to game conventions. Uh, I designed a, a collectible card game based on the uh, Chronicles of Amber, a series by Roger Zelazny that I grew up on. It was my favorite fantasy series of all time. Oh my God. I love that series. I didn't know you made a game for this. Uh, well, I, it's not published. So there's a story, yeah. there's a story here too, right? So um, now, of course, I mean, uh, I was a I was not an entrepreneur at the time. I was just a game designer. I didn't know anything about licensing. I just said I'm going to make this, and if I and I'll figure it out. <laughs> right. So I made yep. uh, I made this game. And I took it. Uh, I worked on it for a year and a half. Recruited a lot of my best friends as playtesters, and I said, you know what? I'm going to do all these conventions that we keep hearing about. So I went to uh, Origins and Gen Con. My very first Origins was in '97. Uh, and that was, I've never been to a major game convention except as a quote unquote uh, exhibitor. I didn't get a booth or anything, but I got a demo table um, and I just sat there. We went there on Wednesday night, slept on Wednesday night, demoed all through the convention, slept again on uh, Saturday night. That's funny. Origins 97 was also my first Origins. Oh, there that you was, go. Uh, 
Yeah, that was that was when they had the. That's where I won the U.S. National Championships for Magic, which was the thing that put me into this whole industry. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> See, we were ships in the night. There you go. Um. So okay, so you had you had. I really now I really want to find. I want to play this game, by the way, because I I love. I actually tried to make a game for the uh the Chronicles of Amber also. Oh yeah. Uh and. And uh, never quite got to the point where I was happy enough with it, but uh, but I absolutely love that 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 IP and it's super cool as a TCG concept. Yeah, me too. You you will not play this game. <laughs> I will not publish it, nor will I reveal it. But um, I mean, it was one of those. It was a classically uh, creative, uh, highly creative because I made a bunch of uh, I made a bunch of game design mistakes that uh, like huge mistakes that only somebody uh, uh, creatively motivated and. Uh, and purely action-driven would make. Um, and I never wanted to fix them. So uh, I, by the time I got to actually sitting down and um, meticulously analyzing the game, I got bored of it and I moved on. Well, I I think there's actually a few different threads I want to I want to pick up here. I figured. Um, you know, uh, I had, uh, you know on, when I first started uh, becoming aware of you as a designer, it actually, you know, I've been so, you know, trading card games obviously is sort of my uh, you know, where I come from also and it's something I've spent a ton of time in. And right. you, without fail, had the most solid, innovative, like well put together, well thought out trading card games that I had experienced since Magic the Gathering. Wow. I absolutely loved I mean the game of like the Game of Thrones uh, game as well as the Call of Cthulhu ones you did were both very like appropriate for the IP. Brought something new to the table in the different ways that they presented the they presented uh, you know play and and they generally worked like there weren't stupid mistakes all over the place, which is the, the I, I constantly see like even when somebody has a good idea, they're constantly just they just throw it away with with some you know very obvious errors and things that ruin the experience. And I, I, I am now sort of hearing more of your story and background, like seeing where this came from, that you had gotten so many reps and iterations in and building these engines because building a trading card game engine is very hard. Like it requires, you know, I've done it dozens of times now, but it's every time you do it, it just requires you to think through you know years and thousands of cards of ramifications and all these different components and so it's you know i i'm curious how you approach projects like that you know thinking either for those projects or 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 nowadays like when you're thinking about building a new a new engine and a new system of that type um because you've done it on a whole variety of ways i think you, you did the um the um munchkin trading card game too which is a hilarious uh project and ip to work with and, that's right and a whole variety of different ones so i'd love to just dig in a little more and like how do you approach you know a project like that uh and and what 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 goes into your engine design process sure well so each one is a very unique and different story um and i guess the the, the biggest common thread you'll find here is that uh what what the thing that motivates me is newness so the I never approach any project the same way twice, and I never approach any uh, I never approach any project going, oh, okay, this is how I'm going to solve the following problems. Um, usually, the common thread is I look for new problems that I haven't solved before, or that um, or that excite me, or that um, or that frighten me more more likely that, um, and just sort of play in that crazy space, right? So. Um, uh, and that's, I mean, that's the mechanical drip. That's the mechanics driven approach. Yeah, no, but, I love, I love, I love, and you know, uh, heading face first towards the things that frighten you is a wonderful 
philosophy for an artist uh, as a general rule. So I, I love that in, in general. Now, I'd love to see how that played out in a few of the specific examples. Sure. Uh, so I guess Game of Thrones, was, well, I mean, it was my first published uh, CCG, but of course it was my, I don't know, 18th design or something like that. Um, so that one, that game was a super interesting process. Um, it, uh, it's, so what happened was um, everything about that game came up from necessity and it was, it literally is the most punk rock project I think I've ever put together um, because fantasy flight at the time was a board game company and they had 10 employees of which I was one of them. Uh, I was, well, I was a consultant who was sort of a de facto employee. Um, we, nobody at the company had any experience with trading card games, even though they had done discourse at the time. Um, the, the, the charm of that game was their inexperience with the format. So I was the only person at the company that had experience with collectible card games. They actually hired me to develop a card game designed by Reiner Knizia, uh, which was, uh, which has now become Scarab Lords. Um, so my, my first day on the job was to look at this game uh, and analyze it and then have to go back and report to them. Uh, this game is, uh, this is a very nice mathematically well-balanced game. It's a terrible CCG uh, for the following reasons. So my my second day on the job was to write a re letter to Reiner Knizia saying, um, so I'm a new guy on the job. You've never heard about me, but I'm rejecting your game. Sorry. <laughs> oh, um, that, amazing. That was fun. Um, but yeah. so the, the, um, the way that schedules, of course, for, for medium-sized publishers at that time, right? Um, they were so cash flow driven that you have to meet your release. You have to, period. Um, so they were like, well, we need a collectible card game for Gen Con. Um, so he, uh, um, the CEO, Chris Peterson, actually asked me if uh, I was interested in doing a Game of Thrones uh, collectible card game. Of course, at the time, I was reading Storm of Swords, which had just come out. The, the third book in the series, which had just come out uh, a couple weeks ago. So my answer to that was to run back to his office and grab, grab a copy of the book, slam it on the desk and go, hell yes. Um, he said, great. So um, why don't you show me a basic engine for the game tomorrow? Tomorrow? <laughs> so that's, um, there's a common thread here. I, this happens to me a lot. Um, so design a TCG engine by tomorrow. Well, right now, when we say design a TCG engine, right, we mean in the, like, well, I, I, more completely than just a pure, than a theory craft, right? But but um, like here, design design something that works with some example cards that show that this works. Sure. Um. So uh. So I did. Now, of course, again, I was a fan of the series, um, and. Now, uh, Chris Peterson was my co-designer on this game, and uh, he actually he was the one who came up with the idea of doing a plot deck. Uh, he's, he was like, "What if we just what if you had a deck of resources that you don't draw? You could pick out whenever you want, turn by turn." I was like, "That's crazy good." Um, yeah. So I took that, and then um, turned that into a game. So the, the, the um, of course you can you can tell my my love for magic is in that game right the the, the core yeah, of the course. core of, of Game of Thrones is the is the challenge phase how the challenges work and what I was thinking of was the I guess my motivation there was the Game of Thrones is a really interesting is an interesting series because it has elements of military of politics and of intrigue right so it's like well all right so what if I basically did a sort of 
uh, attacking and style blocking combat system, which had three vectors that covered the military side of it, the 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 um, the intrigue and the politics. Now that the that ended up after I started testing it on paper with uh, with sugar packets. Um, Splenda sugar packets are my CCG design tool of choice. Um, I just grabbed a bunch of Splendor packets and literally started envisioning the play in my head um, while playing with them, um, coming up with stats in my head, uh, playing it out and waiting and uh, playing it and playing it and playing it, changing it, playing it, playing it until um, I could get an emotional reaction out of myself. Like, oh, this is really exciting. Oh, this is frightening. I haven't seen this before. Um, so I came back the next day with that basic challenge system. Um, and the and the, the dominance phase were like, oh, by the way, anything that you keep standing outside of challenges will also get you the victory points at the end of the game. Um, now, of course, at the time, I'd also played, I, I was also a disciple of, of uh, Euro games uh, at the time. Uh, Settlers Catan and Carcassonne had just come out and a whole bunch of Euro games from Rio Grande games. So I've become, I love those mechanics-driven, really elegant, simple uh, victory point driven games. I was sort of inspired by that to go, uh, to, instead of making a game about uh, decimating your opponent, to make a game about collecting points for yourself, for your house. Uh, it made thematic sense and it felt a little different. Um, yeah. And just to, just to go dig a little bit into it, because, you sure. know, this game's been around a long time, but some people may not be aware. So that each of the phases of combat, if you won that type, that style, then you would get a different type of bonus that would all inter interact in some way. Right. So if, That's right. and that, 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 I just found that to be such a fascinating where you could theoretically ignore, you know, one or even two of those channels if you wanted to, but you were going to be at this huge disadvantage. And so you would have to sort of decide what, what your strategy was going to be. It was just such a fascinating execution uh, to make, you know, story-wise makes sense right you don't want the you know the sort of little finger or the spy master to be like swinging a sword and fighting against Jon snow but right. on the other hand they have their own way of winning victories and and so that i just thought was really both story-wise a, a, a huge hit and then yeah created all these obvious and interesting mechanical uh plays so it was it was real really really stuck with me for for all these years oh that's rough. that's awesome to hear uh, uh, yeah that's uh, that game is uh, it's I mean, I'm still proud of it, of course, but I, um, I was the sole designer, developer, art director, producer, um, web content developer, and uh, organized play assistant manager for that in, for that game, that for three years. So I burned out really hard, um, yeah. and I, yeah, I, I still can't play it anymore. But, um, I can't play. It's hard. It's hard for me. I actually curious that in general is because I have this problem too with a lot of my older games. It's very hard for me to play them. Hmm. Uh, very hard. Uh, of course. Well, you know, because you, I'm sure you you just see mistakes, right? Yes, exactly. You, all I can see are the are the mistakes in, in in a lot of my older games, and and it's a it's a very challenging place to be because I know. I mean, there are things that are great about it. Some people love them, of course, and I'm proud of them in many ways. Also, but every time I personally play them the mistakes should jump out and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Like, oh, I would never in a million years think of doing this now. That's right. Uh, but no, but flip that on its head though, right? Um, so in the in the last couple of years, in the last few years, I should say, I've actually become, uh, I, I sort of changed my thinking on this a little bit because one of the questions I get asked in interviews all the time is like, uh, pick a game of yours, a famous game. What would you like to, uh, what would you go back and what would you change? 
and I'd always have a, a, a quippy answer for it and um, or, or a thoughtful answer because, of course, I do this exercise, go back and say, what would I change? Um, but I've actually come to appreciate uh, games as a, of course, games as art. Um, that's obvious. But the, one of the most important things about art, of course, is its historical context. So I'm not sure I would go back and change anything because... If so, let's say, I, like for example, say I went back and uh, went back to Game of Thrones, right? And I said, "All right, clearly, I mean, there was there were several uh, crazy mistakes in the card pool, um, but a lot of those a lot of the, those mistakes were just like the early mistakes in Magic, right? They were so uh, they produced so much adrenaline at the table. They produced such amazing stories that I don't think you could. I don't think doing a more correct version of that would have hit the same chord i think because one of the things that um one of the things that i i I was a big fan of in collectible card games at the time when i was doing um game of thrones was sort of riding that razor's edge right making a game that um i I played a lot of games i'm sure you have at the time uh there was a whole generation of collectible card games that were um air quote fixing the mistakes of magic Right by uh, by, yes. by making it more procedural, <laughs> by making it more boring, by by uh, flattening the power curve, um, all the things that makes magic exciting, right? That the, the, they fixed all, quote unquote, fixed all that. And I was so bored of that. I was like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna make magic more broken. Yep. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a card that uh, I'm I'm gonna make a card that a conditional kill card that is free, right? That that, that kind of stuff. And um, made the fulcrum of the game's balance based entirely on dynamic interaction rather than a um rather than something that was as easily computable as a mana curve right right which is why the, which is why the resource system in, in um in, in game of thrones is so malleable right um and so that i knew i hit on it because i was watching people play and they were and it was so swingy. I mean, that game is so crazy swingy, especially when you played with 40 card decks in the old days. It was so swingy, and so the, the stories that came out of it were incredible. Even though I know I would never design the cards like that again today, I don't think I would have. I I don't think the game would have been as successful in that time in that place. Sure. Yeah. No. And the, and 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 there are both in the in the realities of you know the game in the marketplace at the time it was. And then as sort of this other side of your point about it being artistic is it's a reality of who you were at that time, you know, that, that, that each, each thing you create can't help but be a reflection of who you were and what things you were concerned about and what things you were blind to and where you're, you are reacting to the type of stuff that was out there. And, and I think that, yeah, there's still value and, 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 and joy out of that, uh, looking back and then, you know, again, building on top of it, you know, it, even, the the games that you made then have now become the not only the platform and foundation for games that you've made since but games that tons of people in the industry have made since you know these these elements become building blocks that they now are quote unquote you know sort of solve problems that allow people to approach new uh unsolved problems that weren't even you know visible before or weren't approachable at all before that right or problems that you created <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yes yes indeed <laughs> So I'm uh, uh, so many different ways we can go here. I noticed that uh, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, you you know, you described it as your most uh, punk rock of games, and mm-hmm. and you talked about uh, you know your sort of 
having to, to take everything you love and, and create with it, whether that being, you know, making music or writing screenplays or, uh, or scripts, uh, where, how, do you see a lot of crossover in the types of the ways that those arts have, have done? Do you, is your, your writing or music background informed your game design or vice versa? Oh, sweet God. Yes, absolutely. So um, I was a, I was a musician before I was a game designer for well over a decade. Um, I picked up a, I picked up my first guitar when I was 11. Um, I've been playing guitar, bass and drums since then. Uh, I'm not great. Uh, I'm not giving guitar lessons to anybody. Uh, but, um, I think in music, um, and I've been, I, I've spent my life developing my ear. Um, and the, the most, I guess the most cogent analyses I can come up with in gaming when I'm, when I'm, when I'm describing, when I'm situationally describing game design, I always fall back on music. Um, and so the, uh, I, I throw a lot of crazy analogies in there, right? So I've been telling, uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine, one of my oldest friends, um, Kevin Wilson recently, who he and I talk about game design all the time. And there was a point when I remember I told him like, you know, I always thought, I always thought I was like, I always thought I was prog rock, but I'm really like, a, I'm really a punk rocker who got into prog for like 10 years and then decided he wanted to be punk again. Um, but you, but you can't take the prog out of you. So the, the, the analogy they're holding that, I mean, I was, uh, in my early years, I designed entirely by instinct and training my ear, um, in game design term, right? That's just the ability to recognize when something is fun or unfun, right? Um, as, and I know that's not the most fungible definition, but, but you still get it, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, player, player experience is the only metric that matters at the end of the day, exactly. right? Either this is fun and we're having a good time or we're not. Uh, and, and so there, that, that's key. There's no replacement for having that instinct and, or training that instinct. You, you, you don't have to have it to begin with, but you do have to, you do have to learn it. Exactly right. Right. And so there's, um, and there's a level of empathy that goes along with, uh, that goes along with an essential level of empathy that goes along with uh, both game design and music, which are related as well. Right. So when you're a musician, you're out performing, um, you, what you're performing for, I mean, yes, you may think you're going out there to perform flawlessly. You may think you're going out there to, to jam with your friends and that's, those are essential components, but you're there to share energy with your fans. Right. And, um, the, you need a degree of empathy to read the room, to adjust your, to adjust your playing, to adjust your performance, um, in order to make the fans happy. That comes, that needs to be an essential part of your motivation, your character. Um, I feel the same way about game design, right? You, um, when you're designing and when you're playtesting, uh, which are the same as far as I'm concerned, uh, you are spending your time reading the room and adjusting. I, I don't put, I don't put a lot of, uh, taxonomy behind it, but, uh, I use mostly the same skills, uh, while in playtesting that I did when I was performing. And so that is just sort of that awareness of the, you know, the energy, the feeling in the room, the reactions, and then absolutely that, and then also just relying instinctually on what it is that caused those and how you might adjust it to, to modify and get to where you want to go. Absolutely. So I was the, uh, I, uh, um, uh, God, I'm going to sound like a hipster here. Um, before it was the cool thing to say, <laughs> um, I was the, <laughs> I, I was the high priest of noetic experience, right? So I was the guy in, back in, I don't know, 2005, 2006, those out there preaching, um, about the, the perils of data driven 
early play tests, right? But like your, your feedback comes from the table, your feedback comes non-verbally and through observation, um, not through post-mortem. Um, and especially in gamers, more so in gaming than it does in music. Um, gamers who are generally um, more, have a higher, uh, generally have a higher knowledge and higher uh, IQ, I guess, but not necessarily, maybe a slightly lower EQ, tend to, um, especially the really smart ones, tend to um, reconstruct their own memories of what was happening at the table um, through a lens that, um, through, through a much more rational lens than actually was happening at the table. So that, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not like I'm telling you anything you don't know, but like you, you sit there at the table, the classic example, you're sitting there play testing at the table and um, somebody is obviously struggling with one of your, with a, a part of your core game loop. They're just completely struggling. They don't know what to do. They don't know what the next step is. They always have to be reminded. They always have to ask. By the time the fifth cycle of that loop has happened, they're like, oh, okay, I finally get it. All right. And at the end of the game, that's what they remember. And if you ask for feedback, if that's what you're taking, they'll say, oh, yeah, I got it. It was easy. Yeah. Right. Um, and without, especially, you know, with social norms being what they are and, um, uh, and uh, especially if they're playing with friends, it's even worse. So I, I got to the point where I took it to the uh, almost extreme and said, like, nope, you, you watch the table, you read the table. Um, ideally, you're not even there. Yes. Yes, if you can, if you can have, uh, you know, that sort of uh, for a couple of games I've worked on, I've I've been fortunate to be able to have that one way mirror uh, playtest mm -hmm. uh, where I can literally watch them react and not have them see me. Uh, it's a, it's amazing, but very rare that you actually get to pull that off. It's true. I've actually spent a lot of time training my playtesters though to treat me as if as I wasn't there. So I actually I have some testers that I do trust to just play, um, and that's part of, by by making myself as quote unquote inaccessible that's great that's a super valuable resource so how do you what do you uh, just because that might be a useful skill for people so what is it what do you do to train them do you uh do you slowly stop talking uh <laughs> as you're hearing them do you do you make a face uh you know put up a little a little uh, cardboard uh, no, sign it, or so what, it's a what, little how bit do you, like you parenting actually it's, it's gonna sound so condescending <laughs> and, and patronizing but it's true um, so when playing, I, I use, a, I have a, some old tricks that I use, right? So like people play a game and they'll come ask me a question. They'll like, uh, and then I just turn to a Turing machine. I'm like, well, what do you think? Hmm. Right. Well, what do you assume is going to happen? And, or, or even like if I'm feeling glib, right, I'll be like, I don't know. I just got the game. <laughs> uh, let me check, let me check the rule book up. Oh, it's not in here. Uh, let's, let's see if we can find it on. I'll see if I can find it online. You guys continue. Right, stuff like that, or or like even through negative reinforcement, I'm like, well, if you have to ask me, then something's wrong with the game. We got to stop. Yeah, um, that that's a that's a a little bit of a devilish trick because um, I sometimes do that even if uh, even unprompted because um, that, that that's one of my tests to find out if people really want to continue playing the game, the game that is rather than the game they want it to be. Because if I pull something like that and it's like, no, 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 no we'll, 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 fine, we'll, we'll play, we'll figure it out. Oh, that's amazing. Right. I love that. I love that trick. I'm definitely going to steal that. That's because like I, I, you know, Dude, for me, but, but don't make this too public, Justin, because <laughs> it stops becoming effective. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. Nobody's listening to us right now. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, no, because I, I mean, I, there, there's, there's a couple pieces there from, you know, 
you know, so I always tell people like the key to knowing whether you're, you know, you're actually on the right track or not is do people play independently right. of you telling them to play, right? Do they, do they just start up another game when they finish? Do they continue to want to play outside right. of you prompting? But this is even better because this is, you try to take it away from them and they stop right. you from taking it away from them uh, to continue to play. That's a, that's a, that's a very powerful uh, positive uh, right. cue for sure. And, and I will do the, I will do the, um, I've done, Hey, I want, this is a, somebody gave me this game to evaluate. Do you guys right, mind yep. helping me that, to check it I, out? I, I, help, I think. Right. Whereas like, they don't know it's me. So they're way more likely to give me real feedback and I can, you know, kind of see what's going on. Uh, I used is, to teach that at the panels. Unfortunately I did that one too many times and now my, now testers are mean to it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is what the problem of us giving away our tricks. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But I did exactly the same thing. I go into the game store and say, Hey, a, a buddy of mine made a game. It looks, I guess it looks fine. Um, let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and often what I would, I would even come into it as a, uh, as a negative guy. Right. So, uh, and, and people do that with me too. Like even with my own games, if somebody says like, like, Oh, is this, uh, was this intentional? I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, like or, or or somebody gets glib and says like oh is this fun i'm like no <laughs> but, uh, and if if they like i love it sometimes they'll be inclined to defend it right and that that's cool um but i'm not but uh or sometimes i'll just like uh, i'll even troll playtesters in the middle of the game and just start a random argument about something um just to get them arguing amongst themselves oh wow you're 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 far more vicious than i i i'm a I don't know. If, I'm kind of kind of glad now. I haven't been a playtester for many well, years. But they love like again. <laughs> this this is from reading the room, right? Like if uh, reading the room or knowing the playtesters. But if um, sometimes I'll just start a debate about, especially among people who love to argue, um, because then I just select. I, I listen carefully to what they choose to argue about and what they choose to get passionate about. Um, and that's, I mean, that ultimately that's what I'm looking for, right? I'm looking for something that's going to excite the, the type of games that I make. I'm looking for something that's going to excite passion. Yes, yes, that's that's really the key, right? The getting the people that are excited and and passionate because and it comes with the territory on both sides, right? People getting passionate about your games means they're going to get oh, passionately absolutely. upset too, right? And and you you know you do this as long as as you have, and you know you got people that they really get fired up, and you know you've ruined my game or you've done this mm -hmm. horrible thing, and like you know how. Uh, how have you how have you dealt with that over the years? Are you just immune to it now, or is it uh, something you actually even look forward uh, to? Or yeah, so, <laughs> God, I'm a nerd. I made myself a little VP track, a victory point track of milestones. Of uh, you know, you've made it when, mm -hmm. um, and it was a bingo mm -hmm. card at first, but then I lost it. So I made myself a little VP track of, of, of the types of negative reinforcement I was looking for from the internet. Um, I've got my own Reddit thread. Um, voted to why I'm the biggest hack uh, in, in gaming. I've got, uh, I, I have my uh, my stalker, uh, my internet stalker who, who will not allow any internet thread to be, uh, any positive comment to be made about me without interjecting about why it's wrong. <laughs> um, I've got the, I've got the, the, the impassioned armchair designer reviewer um, who deconstructs my stuff artistically uh, in a very Roger Ebert fashion to explain why everything is exactly wrong with it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, oh, it's, yeah, yeah. I've, 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 uh, I, I have won several of my own board games by this VP track several times over. That's wonderful. Um, um, and no, I mean, it still stings, right? Even today, it still stings, right? If I, especially like 
somebody just saying, oh, this guy sucks, I don't care, right? But somebody, um, somebody who is obviously the target audience of one of my games um, making a, I thought I was, I was supposed to love this, but I really hated this for this and this and this reason. That, that still stings. Yeah. Um, but, but I get over it pretty fast. Yeah. You have, I mean, you have to get a thicker skin cause it's going to come with the territory and especially where, you know, your sort of stated goal and, and, and certainly the longer you're in the industry, the more, you know, you want to be pushing boundaries. You want to be answering questions that people haven't answered or that are scary to answer. That's right. And, you know, I always say like, if my design goes out the door and I'm not scared of something in that design, then I fail. Right. Like I, I, there needs to be that. Otherwise you're, you're putting out a boring experience. You're not giving your best, right? I can safely make a B plus game, but that's a fail. You know, right. if I'm not really trying to go for, you know, going for the A or the F, you know, either I, either I'm knocking it out of the park or, or it's a, it's a big miss. Uh, those are, those are fun. You know, that, that, that's what, that's what really keeps me and gets me up, you know, really trying to do something that's exciting and different. And anytime you do something that's exciting and different, you know, you're going to trigger people. Absolutely. And it's cyclical too, right? To a degree. So like, um, I mean, like yourself, we're about the same age, I think. Right. So I, um, and I'm, you easily been a gamer as long as I have. So I've been going back to my roots um, from time to time. And I, um, I went back and played some old like Tom Wham games and some um, um, old uh, Peter Alotka games, not Cosmic Encounter, but uh, like Outpost and, um, and just playing these, these really charming, flawed games um, to remember what I loved about them. Um, and looking at them today and looking at them in today's context and seeing how innovative they would be treated if they were released today. Right. So like, for example, I'm doing, I'm working on a big box board game right now, big box one and a half to two hour board game that features player elimination. Mm -hmm. Um, that nothing new under nothing new there, but today it's, it's like, it's, it's greeted with like, Oh, my stars. Right. Like, (laughs) right. Yeah. Something that, yeah, something that was sort of a, you know, viewed as a negative, which of course player elimination has huge downsides. It and does. then, you know, becomes common accepted that okay, well, we're not going to do this ever. And you realize, well, hold on, actually we lost some tension. We lost some interesting trade-offs here. Uh and then to bring that back in light of new context, maybe with some new solutions to some of the downsides is a, is an exciting thing. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and so I mean, right now the 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 the, the one of the current dogmas, right, is that Especially in, um, it's a, it's a reaction to the marketplace, right? That every game has to have an amazing first play experience. And the, the dogma around that has become, uh, every game must, every player must feel like they are in the game and feel like they can win at every single stage of the game. Every game must be a very evenly paced experience. Don't have your ups too high. Don't have your downs too low. I mean, they don't explain it that way, but that with the push pull of basic tension in games, that's how it works out. Uh, there's a lot of that, right? And especially in the uh, in the more modern uh, family or family plus games. Um, so I started making, uh, when I ask people like, what are your favorite games? They'll be like, oh, I love Battlestar Galactica, right? And that, I mean, I was one of the developers on that, I was the developer on that game. That game is all high highs and low lows, right? You can, yep. you can have amazing games of that because you can also have a terrible games of that. The stakes are real. Right. The dramatic question is uh, the dramatic question is actually a real question. Like, are uh, is this game going to go off the rails? Oh, it did this time. Yep. Um, and and in a game with uh, two hour investment, those stakes are really high. But of course, right, because of the way memory works, right, you tend to 
you'll remember your Lolos, but you'll, but uh, in retrospect, it's a story. And now it's a part of your, it's a part of your narrative. You're giving the narrative. It's actually enriched your life for being that low of a low. Um, I truly believe yeah, well, that. And in fact, in fact, this is true in games and in life, but you know, often the sort of worst experiences create the best stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I think about, I, play, I think I've played, I played diplomacy only one time and it went horribly. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> It went horribly. Like friendships were ruined, yep. but I'll never forget that game. And I learned a lot. <laughs> so I'm glad I did it, but I'm never doing it again. Yep. Absolutely. I love it. Well, I, um, I think that, uh, I want to, I want to make sure I touch on some of these cause you've now, um, you know, you've done a lot of work, uh, with Simon. You've had a lot of these big box board games with tons of miniatures in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really fun experience. I am in, in process of working on one of those myself right now. Uh, so I want to dig in. Yeah, I read about it. it looks cool. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's really nice, like a combination of, you know, the deck building genre with the tactical miniature genre, um, you know, which I've, I've did worked on back in the day for the world of Warcraft miniatures game and have played for my whole life. But I always, you know, every time I approach this type of genre, I try to similar to you, like, you know, ask someone, ask some new questions and try to solve some of the core problems that like underlie the, the industry. So, so like with the, um, world of Warcraft miniatures game, I really wanted to address this problem that like, you know, most miniatures games at the time were just like, all right, I move all my guys, you move all your guys in this sort of static march uh, to the center. And so I created the, the the timing tick system to vary how things go and make that a key resource uh, to what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think with uh, your designs have really done a great job of, of upending a lot of the, of the common uh, conceptions around what belongs in a miniatures game. Um, I, Blood Rage in particular stands out to me as one I've played probably more than any other, um, where in fact, die, having your miniatures die more often can be a path to victory, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a variety of other paths. Can you talk a little bit about that game's kind of origin and what your, your motivations were there? Sure. Um, so this, it's hard to come up with a Reader's Digest version of this because this uh, this game particularly, its lineage just goes way back. So um uh, back in 2005, I actually um, uh, I designed a game called Midgard, which is a, a Euro, uh, a pure Euro-style Viking game. Um, and um, it started off as because I want to do Viking. Uh, Viking mythology has always been one of my. Uh, I, I grew up on it. Uh, I grew up on a very twisted version of it um, from from children's books in Germany. And uh, I wanted to make a game that was just based on uh, on sort of the the pop culture idea of what vikings did and uh what what viking life must be like and at first i tried to do like um a euro game based on that um i designed it for uh, z-man games and the big the the principal mistake of that game was that he gave me 100 percent control the designer uh so i i was uh, i was the designer developer um editor i was even the art director uh, I directed the graphic design, and of course, which none of these games are one-man shows, right? Even even my most auteur projects, I always have very strong voices in the room that disagree with me and can push me when I need to be pushed. Um, that game, I had none. I was I did everything I wanted to, and I had no um, there, there was nobody opposing me in any part of the process. So the game, I. I commissioned this amazing cover by John Gravato, who did a work for Games Workshop and Magic, 
this, this awesome Viking with a uh, with a badass helmet sitting in Ridley Scott pose, holding his arms in the, in the air going, oh my God, it's the end of the world. And like comets coming down. It was an amazing cover. Inside was a Euro BP point salad game um, based on card drafting. Um, so the, 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 the disconnect between product and experience was so high, the game just tanked, right? Um, people who were really in, who attracted by that cover and got this sort of Euro game were like, what, what is this, right? Euro game fans who sort of knew my background, um, who, who didn't like to take that elements, it just, it was too middle. Uh, I'm That's still fascinating. So yeah, th- there's a lot, yeah, a lot of great, a lot of great lessons there. The irony of you getting everything that you want being a curse is 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 a key a key theme there. You need Absolutely. people to push back. You know, no matter how long you've been doing this job, you are wrong a lot of the time. In fact, most of the time, you have to find you need ways to validate how wrong you are. Yep. And then building a thing that making sure that it all is cohesive. You know, I I I a, a brief. So I made a game called uh, Bad Beats uh, oh, I played several that. years ago. Yeah, which I really am proud of. It's this very fun, you know, bluffing, you know, trying to lie to your friends kind of thing. And, and But it's given this cutesy cover of these kids, you know, at the dinner table trying to get rid of their beats. And, and it's uh, a mean-ass game. Yeah, and it's a mean <laughs> game. I mean, it is just a cutthroat game. And I think we just completely failed uh to to mash those two so even though if you were a kid's game player and you would would like this this is going to be too cutthroat for you and if you were the kind of person that would love this gameplay you're going to get turned off by the cover so i also had to learn that lesson the hard way oh absolutely absolutely so the um now the thing is i mean generally speaking i mean the further along i go in my career the more control i have over my projects but i mean, i still get the final call on most of the stuff i work on but i absolutely make sure to surround myself with people that disagree with me and listen to them. Um, Even if I disagree, I still want to have that argument in the room. Right. So the, um, the, I don't know, at some point, 10 years later, I was working on some other games. I'd done chaos ball and Arcadia quest for, uh, for Simon. That was really, uh, I, I got to, I felt like a kid in a candy store, right? I got to indulge all my favorite toy game fantasies. Um, And I was just, I looked at the cover of Midgard sitting on my shelf going, you know what? I want to actually make the game that that cover promised. And that's where, that's, that's the root of the, that's the origin story of blood rage. So that's great. Um, the, it, it actually started with the idea that um, I, I love the drafting. I love the card drafting, but I wanted to have, make sure that everything in the game was rooted, uh, was rooted thematically. Right. Um, I hate the term Ameritrash, not because I don't like the term trash. I think it's cool, but I just I, I I just think of it as one type of discipline. Right. All it is is um, immersive thematic discipline. And what I want is what I wanted was a game that where every design decision comes from a very, very clear, unapologetic vision. Right. And the vision was you are you are Vikings that are like pillaging in the like in the worst Michael Bay uh, Viking movie ever. Everything is exaggerated. Everything is the greatest in the world. Um, and then after that, I'm just, I was just going to use my gut and indulge all my CCG drafting uh, expertise and translate it into board game form. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that was the, that was the start. Um, but yeah. yeah, the, the, um, the, so thematically, uh, I didn't start. I didn't start. I didn't start going. 
uh, I didn't start thinking with the with the mechanical question of like how can I address units dying. I came with well, these are the gods that you are following because when you're drafting, you're um, you're being you're being bestowed gifts of the gods, and it's too much for you to handle, so you pass it on. Um, what how what are the uh, so of course I thought of the gods as lightly sort of as colors in a color wheel like magic, right? All great games come from magic, <laughs> but the um, the what what is the feeling that each god what is the strategic domain that each god covers right and of course loki the trickster uh, the emotional uh heart of loki is you play against loki and you yes he loses but that's what was that was his plan all along and he screws you for it right so that that was the easiest one to come across the rest of them came up a little bit more subtly loki just play uh sticks out because it's the one that plays against the norms in that kind of game so thematically, right. it totally makes sense that, yeah, yeah you die. Um, uh, you, you, if you die, uh, he can punish you for being the one who wins. And of course, the, the Viking, the pop culture idea of what Vikings in Valhalla, like you, you fight, you fight for glory. If you die, you go to Valhalla. And that's even better because you get more glory. Well, since right. it's a VP game, that's clear. And it's clearly an obvious, uh, clear and obvious. So theoretically, just like any good thematic game where the theme can inform every aspect of the game, including where you're going against the brain, um, that's better, right? It doesn't work. It, I, of course, I'm immensely proud of, proud of Blood Rage. That was, I think that game was a, that's one of the few games I wouldn't change much of at all. Even though I see mistakes in it, I wouldn't change much at all. Um, I'm very, very proud of it. But part of that was because so much of it was, I never strayed from the core principles of that game. Even though I changed mechanics around it, I changed card effects. I iterated like crazy. I never strayed from that core vision from day one. I was just, uh, I was so connected to it. So there, there's this, this thing there that uh, I think is interesting where, you, you know, like you have this sort of this core lodestone, this core, you know, seed that becomes the game. And that is sort of your guiding principle of like, this is what I want. This is where, what's going to drive all the other decisions and filter my decision-making And mm-hmm. this, you know, having that and being able to stick to it is incredibly powerful. The, in this case, it was clearly the, the sort of the theme and, you know, bringing, bringing to light the promise of the cover, uh, from, you know, years earlier. Do you tend to find that that is a thematic core for you is there a mechanical core is there an emotional core of a different type is it all over the place what tends to provide that inspiration and 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 drive your designs yeah i mean today um today it's something that scares the crap out of me right um uh, i i love I, i love um just scaring myself with a design um like yourself i've seen i've i've been around the block i've seen a lot right um I'm really not interested in doing anything that's kind of safe that's already out there or something that's going to replicate something that's already on my shelf. Um, but the, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean like I have to make, Oh my God, something so innovative. Nobody's ever seen this before. Even if it's a, even if it's fresh, if it's a, if it's a new take on something we've seen a hundred million times, sure. No problem. Um, I've actually found that most of the entertainment I enjoy is that it's just a fresh, re, it's a, a fresh perspective on something that's very well known. Um, but generally speaking, I'm, uh, nowadays I'm never, I, I've never ever come into design going, Oh, uh, let's go through board game geek and oh, worker placement. What would I do with worker placement? Like, no, nah, I never think like that anymore. Um, yeah. me- mechanics are tools, they're notes, they're scales. You need to know them. You need to study them. You need to know their, uh, 
you need to have a good sense of their um, of cause and effect um, and how they work together, how they don't work together, et cetera, et cetera. But the now that the tool's in a box, it's always good. And so um, it's just something that's got to, something about it has to really excite me. And nowadays it's got to frighten me. So the natural follow-up question is, uh, what's, what frightens you these days? Uh, what frightens me these days? Um, I recall a conversation with Jordan Weissman, our mutual friend. Um, I asked him the same question. Um, this was way back in the 90s. No, sorry, it was in the mid-2000s when he was uh, running WizKids. Um, and he and I were working together on a project that never came to light. Um, I asked him, like, because um, he's one of the people I respect the most and I look up to the most and sort of emulate to a degree. Um, I was like, what is what's the thing that scares you the most about the about your career? And what he struck without skipping a beat, um, he said, becoming irrelevant. Um, that resonated with me. Um, uh, the 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 thing that scares me the most is that I don't have anything interesting left to say, right? And I want to be clear about that. Not that I don't mean, I don't, I'm, I don't want, I don't mean that to say, oh, I'm not, I don't have any new mechanics to throw into the BGG toolbox or I have any new exciting themes. Um, I like what I, I don't want, I, um, the thing that, that scares me the most is falling comfortably into the quote unquote Eric Lang toolbox. Right. Um, if, if I make an Eric Lang game, I want you to I want you to feel like, oh, this is a cool Eric Lang game, but something about it's got to surprise you. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, if it's too if it's too you, it's not good enough. <laughs> well, right. Well, because I mean, the so uh, I've I've watched enough Kickstarter videos where where people were uh, talking with creators who make these miniature area control games. And too many times have I seen these Kickstarter games, people saying like, oh, I want to sort of make an Eric Lang style uh, miniature game. Like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah, but that's off. That's to the new generation now. I got to do a new thing. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, constantly innovating and finding ways to, to push the envelope, I think is, is certainly what keeps things exciting. And you've... Uh, you you mentioned Kickstarter, so you know obviously you've had a, a ton of success on Kickstarter. You know you and and, and your projects have got to be near the top total of all the things earned by anybody. Uh, period. Uh, how how does that feel? That's a it's kind of a it's kind of a crazy you know shift in our entire industry that you in many ways are are at the forefront of. What what do you think about that and its its influence now? And how should how should other people be thinking about it? Uh, I mean, how do I feel about it? it scares the heck out of me, but. Um, it scares the heck out of me as an artist, right? Because um, for precisely the reason you said, right, that that, um, that that I participated in a string of games which have accumulated this much Kickstarter notoriety and uh, and and money, that you get to that point, like, oh, is that it? Have I peaked now? Is that like everything I do is going to be measured against that, right? Um, that's rough, right? But um, I mean, I love Kickstarter. I always have. I always will. Um, I try very hard not to become cynical about it. Um, to degrees, some of us are already sort of treating it like a solved platform. Um, but by, by sort of copying the Zombicide formula or, uh, or nowadays the Awaken Realms formula or the, uh, uh, or the Monolith formula, it's, I, I think there's so much, it's a new platform. It's just all it is is a new engagement platform 
um, that is still basically in its infancy. I, I still feel like there's so much room for uh, for new for innovation and new expression and uh, and new engagement. That I, I would be I'd be sad if I was part of a movement that sort of dogmatized that uh, that part of the industry. Well, I'm, I'd be curious because I think you know, for a lot of people, I'm sure you know that are that are listening to this, where they, you know, when you say these formulas, they're not they're not transparent to a lot of the people that are out there. And of course, you know, there's always ways to innovate. What do you think of you know, not to sort of dogmatize, but of, of best practices that are out there, or maybe even you know, tailor that with new new opportunities that are on the horizon. What kind of advice would you give to someone that wanted to? Uh, you know, run a Kickstarter, sort of get involved in this space? <laughs> well, um, well, so... S- says the guy it, about to run a Kickstarter. Right, right. Well, <laughs> so, no, it's, it's, it's really hard for me to give contextless advice, right? Um, so, uh, and uh, it's weird. It's, it's almost a, t- uh, a nervous tick with me, right? If, if somebody asks me a, a general question like that, I'll usually, I will want to know more about the person asking the question, right? Um, like where are you from? Yeah, What's so I can. So right? I'll, I'll we'll give the two cases. So you can give you can give me direct advice because why not? It's my podcast. Sure. Because uh, uh, I got a Kickstarter coming up, uh, in a, in, as we're recording this in a couple months, uh, and so some or or someone generically that has you know has some experience, has some you know some some time in the industry, and has something that they've developed and want to bring it to Kickstarter and really try to knock it out of the park, and then we can we can take do another take again with somebody who's more just starting out and doesn't have as much of an audience doesn't have as much experience so I, i'd be you know both contexts would be interesting sure sure well i mean like, so somebody like yourself right um well i mean you're you're a bit of a unique case because you have so much more experience i think than the vast majority of your listeners right so um just to, to somebody who uh is a um uh, we'll call him a Justin Gary Apostle, right? <laughs> Somebody who listens to a lot, who, who's absorbed a lot of your work, like like the Mark Rosewater Apostles on the internet, right? Who can recite everything he's ever said and could design a Mark Rosewater style magic set, right? Um, mm-hmm. To somebody like that, um, I would probably say um, the, I mean, the, the success metrics are pretty transparent. I actually do think Kickstarter is one of the most transparent um, uh, success models out there because everything Every interaction we have is out there. You can see it. You can reverse engineer any Simon or, uh, or, or Awaken Realms or, or even the Exploding Kittens. Just, just diligently compare their numbers with KickTrack and, and it's like the data is there, right? What the thing that you can't do is synthesize it contextually, right? Um, a lot of smart people can come up with a lot of different reasons why this bidet spiked, why this particular update spiked, um, or, or this one failed or flopped. Um, timing obviously matters, all that stuff. The, the thing I would, the, the, what I would, what I would suggest nowadays as, as the, uh, as the platform is maturing, um, I believe that Kickstarter is probably a m- more pure expression of the reputation economy, I think, than any other platform. Um, you as a publisher, uh, it doesn't matter how awesome you are as an individual. You enter that platform without credit, uh, without like without street cred. Um, that defines your ceiling, right? The the the, the realistically defines the ceiling of, of how successful you're going to get from a dollar's perspective, right? Um, nowadays, it's much more important that it's as important 
to delivering a good game and delivering a great experience that you have a track record of get being on the platform, delivering something cool, fulfilling your uh, fulfilling and ideally going beyond the expectations set by the Kickstarter campaign um, and uh, and really managing the uh, post Kickstarter um, uh, post Kickstarter excitement. Um, now we we do that fairly well. We as in CMON, we do that fairly well. We still have a lot to learn. Um, I don't think people understand just how much of CMON is dedicated to the Kickstarter engine. Um, it looks like it's a couple like it looks like it's a couple of really excited people making comments on our on our board. It's not right. We are a giant worldwide fulfillment engine. Um, we are a uh, we have a huge. Uh, uh, we have a huge multinational uh, uh, data collection and uh, and processing team. Um, I mean, I can't say too much more about that in detail, of course. Um, but the core, just this, I'm, I'm only talking about the back end, not the front end, right? Once the Kickstarter, um, your troubles when you're starting a Kickstarter, uh, well, sorry, if you have a successful Kickstarter, the day that your thing is backed on the final day of your Kickstarter, that's when your troubles begin. Right. That's that's why the the uh, people like uh, Adam Poots, who did Kingdom Death Monster, one of the most successful dollar wise Kickstarters of all time, almost went broke. He did not yeah. have the infrastructure to run that thing. Um, so my advice to you, Justin Gary, would be: Are you prepared to uh, Are you prepared to run a publisher that is essentially a live team in video game speak um, to manage both not only the Kickstarter during but afterward? And parlay that into your next one. Uh, are you going for a one and done? If you are, I would actually suggest don't do Kickstarter. That's great. That's so talk, talk more about that. So the, the 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 because the overhead and management and logistical challenge of running something through Kickstarter is so great. If you're not planning to build for the long term and to be able to run multiple campaigns and and build a sustainable infrastructure, you're saying it's not worth it. I don't think so. And again, and this is about expectations, right? If like, and this is, and, and this, I'm giving this advice to you specifically. So somebody in the industry who has, um, who has the experience, who has, uh, to a sense, has priced themselves out of uh, certain brackets, right? Like you, Justin Gary, are never going to make a game for, uh, for, uh, for blank and giggles. Yeah. Um, unless it's to play with your friends, you're not going to do. You're not going to spend the same amount of effort on a game that's going to pull in royalties at a small publisher on a 2000, uh, a 2000 copy print run. Right. Right. If that's your expected ceiling. So if that, if your expectation based on your salary, your needs and, um, and your expectations, if it is, if it's in the multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, if you're going to build that engine, um, you might as well, uh, build that engine with the, with an eye on sustainability. Yeah. Nope. That makes, that makes perfect sense. And and I, you know, I have for me, you know, actual me personally, I have this experience having run, you know, several, you know, multiple six figure Kickstarters and then losing money at the end of the day um, for exactly that reason that we were not prepared uh, for the execution costs and challenges. Now those were digital games and that had its own giant uh, challenges too, but oh, yeah. uh, you know, and that's what sort of stung us for, 
you know, five plus years of not going back uh, to for exactly the thing that you brought up, which is like, no, no, if we're going to do this, we're going to make sure we've got it right. We're going to make sure we've got everything, you know, set up ahead of time. And yes, that it's a sustainable thing that we can for sure deliver what we're saying uh, and make it make it meaningful. So I, it, it's something I, I constantly echo that, you know, it's not Kickstarter, it's kick finisher. You need to be mm-hmm ready to go and ready, you know, really have all your ducks in a row before you even be, before you even start planning a campaign. Uh, and then I, I think your emphasis is, is also really great here, which is forget just the campaign and even the post campaign, but then the next campaign, right? The, the whole thing has to be a plan. If you're looking to be playing at this scale uh, that you need to be thinking at that scale, which is, which is wonderful advice. Right, absolutely, and and of course it it is a it's a semi mature platform, right? So the the barrier to entry is it's up there, right? Like if you are uh, if your if your dreams are to compete with the uh, with the monoliths, with the Simons, with the awakened realms of the world, um, the, well, that bar is up there, and and uh, we've set that bar intentionally very high. Um, so that uh, you, you, I would, I mean, just like any discipline, even in game design in general. I would say if you're looking to follow somebody through a door to success, um, you'd almost be better off just, well, almost would be better off just looking for a slightly adjacent door. Yeah, that's that's one of those things where uh, it's common practice and to some extent common sense. Well, hey, if, you know, success leaves clues, right? Just follow follow the path that somebody else has, has already succeeded with. And, and while, of course, it's valuable to learn, you know, especially if you're trying to follow in the path and the footsteps of, you know, giant corporations that have done this a ton and have a ton of resources to throw at it. Well, you can't follow that same path, right? Right. David doesn't, be, David doesn't beat Goliath by arm wrestling him. Right. He's got to yep. find another path. <laughs> yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, exactly. And Goliath's twin brother is not going to be beaten by David's twin brother. Right. He knows better. <laughs> He's going to be wearing a helmet. <laughs> Uh, so, so then let's, let's then shift the advice. Uh, let's downstream the advice a little bit. So now, you know, it's not somebody that's really, you know, kind of priced into the market and has a ton of experience and a ton of, you know, and an audience. It's somebody that's, you know, pretty new. Maybe they have a published game, maybe not, you know, they're small scale, but they really have this dream of being able to put their game on Kickstarter and, and get something, you know, that they can actually get made and get funded, which they wouldn't be able to make otherwise. Right. So what I would suggest for that person, uh, generally, the, the, um, I find that the 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 upper echelon of those type of creators, they're generally they're they're very creative, very smart, and they're usually fairly innovative. Um, I love those I love those people, and I, I I always I give them the roughest advice because it's it's because it's out of love, I promise. Um, but I would every decision about whether to go Kickstarter or not um, should be weighed against. Um, as a pros and cons list of, uh, between go Kickstarter and make a pr- uh, make a print and play, um, and just distribute it for free. Um, there's, uh, I think there, it should be a it should be a tough pro and con list to make, and it should it obviously has to be tailored against your individual goals. Um, if you're just looking to make some money out of it, um, I would. Uh, if if you're looking to make some money out of it, I would say then try to find a publisher. You will make you're going to become a game company instantly. Uh, the, the day your Kickstarter becomes successful, especially if it's uh, funded uh, with a small number of backers and a high degree of money, which means that you probably offer too much. You're, you're giving every, um, you're you're promising too much of your Kickstarter. You're going to end up spending the rest of your life as a logistics clerk. Um, but 
um, if you're doing this for reputation, if you're doing this to get your, as like a marketing effort to get yourself known, um, I would honestly, to circle back uh, to where we started this podcast, do it for exposure. Put your thing out there for free. Put out a print and play. Get people to love your game. Get it to spread virally organically um, if that's your goal, right? You can always, uh, I mean, print and play games that have been out there for free have sold later. Um, that's I've actually, as a publisher, as the, the guy who's in charge of looking for new games for CMON, I look at the print and play in the print and play community for games that have already attracted an audience uh, and already have, um, have, have proven successful. Um, there's a third type of person uh, starting Kickstarter, um, which, is the, the, which is the designer uh, who's been rejected too many times by, uh, by publishers who wants to bypass the vetting process of publisher. Uh, to them, I unequivocally say don't. Just don't. Um, the, the Kickstarter graveyard is littered with the bodies of, of uh, unfinished, dis, uh, unfinished, unpolished designs that clearly have uh, just evaded that process. If, if no publisher wanted to publish your game, there's probably a reason for it. And maybe it's just time to work on your next game. Yep. Yep. So I, I think that there's a lot of great a lot of great advice in there. I think one of, you know, that focus of your arc should be when you're first starting out, it should be learning. You're not nearly as good at the craft as you think you are. Uh, every oh, yeah. one of us starts off way too, our arrogance to ability ratio is off. That's just the nature of, of youth and, <laughs> and then getting started. Mm -hmm. uh, step one is to learn. And then step two is, you know, to sort of add value and get your stuff out there in whatever way form you can. That's, you know, build relationships, get, you know, make people happy, see what works, get that awareness. Do not focus on money first. And that doesn't mean you have to work for free, but it often does. Um, whether that's putting print in plays, whether that's doing play testing for other people, whether that's submitting your games, you know, and getting them or working with a publisher to get to the point where they can help bring things to life uh, is critical. And then going the route of trying to self-publish or kickstart, I, I always, you know, for some people it's the right path, but it is should be like the last resort should be i can't do anything else therefore i have to go down this road uh, because i've 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 already established myself and i love this particular thing right like i would not have gone back to kickstarter except for building you know a miniature style game at the scale i want to i have to you know i need i the, it, kickstarter is made for that sort of thing um, oh, yeah. because i you know, uh, and, and the, the upfront costs are, are so great and we can make something way more awesome that way. So awesome. That's the way we're going to do it. Um, Absolutely. and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, it's just in addition to the, uh, other note that you gave of, you know, don't make your Kickstarter too complicated. If you do go to Kickstarter, don't promise all the things, Right. You just pick right. a thing, <laughs> give and, them one thing, do that it, well. And it's so easy to get swept up. Right. It's, especially when you're mid campaign, right. You're riding the high of the excitement of the, the uh, you, you're, you've caught the enthusiasm of your backers. Um, the, I, I actually treat, I mean, I, I'm saying this as if I'm the one who makes all the decisions here at, at Simon. I'm not, um, but I'm definitely a, a voice in the room. Um, I, I treat the, the feedback of backers the same way I feed, I treat playtesting. Um, yes. If you ask anybody in the abstract, would you like, x extra they will always invariably say yes um if you give them if you give them the option they will say yes regardless of whether it's actually good for the game good for the product good for the kickstarter all the time 
I mean, we, we have a running joke in, uh, uh, in come on, uh, when, when I, when I, uh, wrap up a game in development for the, for the Kickstarter team, uh, I will even put a note on it saying, nope, there's no solo mode for the following reasons. Um, nope, there's, um, or if it's a cooperative game, nope, there's no head-to-head mode for the following reasons. Uh, this is the player count for exactly this, for exactly these reasons. No, we will not go to X number of players. No, we will not go down to Y number of players for these reasons. Uh, because of course people ask, it's the first thing people ask for. Um, and it's, there's this, there is this absolute, um, of course, there's this great positive feedback for yourself to, to be able to grant that wish to the backers. But if, it doesn't serve your product. People are going to remember the high of getting, of being listened to that once. And then, but they're going to remember the mediocre product that you gave them forever afterward. Yeah. So th- that's a, that's a, I, I, so uh, nobody's going to listen to this, right? I'm going to give this advice. <laughs> this, is, this is the thing I know I'm saying that no one's going to listen to. Right. <laughs> Holding, having that discipline in those situations is incredibly hard. Oh yeah, absolutely. Incredibly hard. I, actually, I can read the, relate this back to the craft of design too, right? Um, in every very highly successful game I've ever done, there's always been a feature, sometimes a core feature, uh, that I've pulled out of the game. Um, not because it doesn't work; that's the obvious. Uh, but I pulled it out because for for um, for for a variety of reasons. But I pulled it out against the protests of my playtesters. Um, for like, uh, Blood Rage had a super innovative, um, uh, mechanic that mirrored the way the airy majority worked in it. Um, that, I mean, I've never seen anything like that in the game. I might turn it into another game, which is why I can't tell you exactly what it is, but the, the, it was so innovative. People played them. Wow. That's really innovative. It was so innovative. It was distracting. Nobody remembered they were playing a game about Vikings going to Valhalla. They just remembered this really cool mechanic. Uh, so it's like I was like, you know what? This after watching five or six games of people just loving that mechanic so much, I took it out, and the game was so much more smooth and enjoyable. And of course, the people who had played it before were like, "You killed the best part of the game. This is the like, why did you take the end of this out?" The people uh, I said, I took it under advisement. Thank you. But the next group of players who played the game, uh, everybody who started playing the game, it was not smooth. It was not. Um, it didn't deliver on any of the promises. Um, new players who came in after I took out took the, the that new feature out, they were they loved the game like almost from start to finish. They wanted to play it over and over and over again. Feedback I'd never gotten before. Yep. Um, I had the same thing with Rising Sun. The same thing with my current new game. Um, and people hear this all the time. Um, this is the 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 armchair designer syndrome, right? Which you'll get especially if you listen too much to the internet. Um, it's relatable to uh, the, the film side uh, when people release special DVD, um, special features DVDs, right? And the uh, director's cuts and all the stuff that uh, they show you all the stuff left on the cutting room floor. It always looks cool. It always looks amazing. And of course, as the armchair creative, you're like, why did you take that out of the film? It would have been so much better. Uh, when you look at, uh, you read a, um, an article on magicgathering.com and you see all the cards that they cut from a set. They were really innovative, really creative and special and like why'd you take that out because it went against the cohesiveness of the product it made the product more mediocre by its inclusion you can't prove that unless you play it right so uh and that's tough right if you listen to if you listen to those too much to those voices in the room uh you will always invariably make uh inferior games in my opinion 
Um, and then you have to listen afterward. You have to listen to the internet people when people say like, "Oh, your games are so deliv- uh, derivative. You're not bringing anything new to the table." Well, I think yeah. it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, building fun and fresh. Yeah. The, this is this is one of those things. I I I. I use somewhat different language for it but but i echo the sentiment in that you know you have to figure out what the core of your game is right what's the core tension what's the core story what's the core elements of what's what's here and anything that distracts you from that i don't care how cool it is i don't care how great the thing is it's gotta go like if it takes away from the core it does not belong there and and again you you already hit the key point which is don't think of it as this is gone forever that mechanic is going to come back. It's a great mechanic. Whatever it is, this mystery mechanic, I'm sure it's great. Uh, but it's going to sure. come back, and you can use it in the future design. Uh, but but it, it, is, it is not serving you. It's not serving your players. And and again, the and and so that that's like just a fundamental part of it. And then there there's the other part that is 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 an interesting thing to highlight, which is you know your play testers are always going to compare what you showed them today with what you showed them yesterday. But right. your players will never right. do that. <laughs> they don't have that yep. option. <laughs> and so you need to be able to parse those differences. Well, if you never saw this other mechanic, this will be a common thing that will happen with us where it'll be, um, you know, we we will have, um, you know, somebody that'll be like, oh, no, no, this was this was great when we did it the other way. And I really now I keep wanting to play that way instead of this. It's like, well, yeah, that's because you're you were used to it. Other people will never see that. Right. You, <laughs> this is exactly not, right. you don't know what you were missing. So you're going to enjoy what you have. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And that, uh, ironically, um, what, um, I work with a team of exceptionally talented uh, developers uh, at, at Come On, and one of my jobs there is is to uh, to mentor and to train them. And uh, I mean, they're all very talented and skilled in their own way. That um, one of the toughest pieces of, of of experience I've had to transfer to them is exactly that, right? To like try not to get too down when people um, or or uh, uh, when, when people, when your playtesters, not even them, when their playtesters get really attached to a certain part of the game and give you this negative feedback of, well, you've ruined it now. Uh, we get it. We get it. Those playtesters are gone. I just told them, fire those playtesters. It's time for a new batch. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate, but, um, that it, but it's just part of the craft. So I think that, you know, mentioning uh, this mentorship, how, how big is your team right now? Um, we have 11 designers and well, yeah, we have 11 designers and distributed or same locations. I distributed. So, so I'd love to talk a little bit then about what it is. Um, what's, what are your best practices for working with a distributed team, which, you know, as, as we're recording this, um, everyone is a distributed team, uh, by default. Uh, uh, so I'd love to get your best practices on that. And then as well as, you know, when you talk about mentoring and training designers, what are the kind of best tips and things that you, you, you do when you're trying to, to help uh, your, your teammates to, to learn and grow and, and work better together? Well, um, so I've only been, I mean, I've only been doing this full time um, as, a, uh, as a career for about three years, right? So I'm, I'm still building those best practices. I've always worked with teams in the past and I've always sort of had a a senior, a senior sort of mentor position, but not formally. Um, so I can tell you, I'm not sure if I can tell you really uh, best practices, but I can certainly tell you some mistakes. Right. That's avoid, works. That's right? how, that's how most of us um, learn. <laughs> exactly right. Right. So like the, um, so, and they all stem from such obvious things, right. But point number one, your, uh, your designers are not you. Um, 
I mean, saying it on your podcast, I'm, it's, it sounds so obvious. Like, why are you even saying this? Um, it goes against, uh, there's a certain degree of, again, of, 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 uh, of empathy and chemistry that goes among a, des, um, a design team where if, if you come up with, if you come up with the, the kernel of a game and uh, ask your partner to finish it remotely, there's a part of it where you're hoping they're going to read your mind, right? And, and come and, and finish it in a way that you sort of saw. But the whole point of working collaboratively is for them to add, uh, is to add a unique perspective, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, that helps evolve your game. This goes a little contrary to what you were saying before and what I also believe in. You have a game, you have the core of the game, the thing that you're going for, um, and everything else needs to be cut. When you're working collaboratively, you have to be able to adapt and you have to be able to allow the, um, the game that you're working on together to, to take form as you both find that fun together. Um, and ideally, uh, in that situation, you're looking for something that is greater than or different from something you would have, either one of you would have done yourselves. So I spent my first year, of course, trying to teach people how to design like me, and that's impossible. It's so, it's, it's so obviously impossible. I'm embarrassed to, have, to be saying in public that I spent a year trying to do that. Hey, you're talking to a guy um, who wrote a book but, on how to design games, okay? So be careful. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a certain degree of necessary hubris that goes with our, <laughs> with our profession, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I just couldn't, couldn't resist. Oh, <laughs> no problem. So, yeah, you're, they're not you. They have their own perspective. They have their, they come to the table they're bringing their own unique sets of both merits and flaws to the table that you have to embrace. So I've actually started, in, um, I've actually started going back to my music background here a lot. Right. I mean, I played in bands all the time. That's, um, that's what I've been doing all the time. And the, the best practices there follow what you, um, every band is a dictocracy. Uh, uh, this is a, a term I stole from John Zinzer, a good friend of mine. Uh, we run runs AG. A dictocracy, of course, is a democracy. Everybody gets an opinion, and then we do what I say. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's oh, it's a great. It was a, it's a great saying. Um, so everybody does get an opinion. Everybody deserves to be heard, and everybody should be heard, and everybody needs to have influence over the final product. But there needs to be a leader, and that leader has to make the final call. Um, of course, being that leader requires you to have the the intellectual honesty and the emotional honesty to be able to go. You know what? Even if I think this is the best idea it's probably best for the game that we try this other thing, right? And if, when you try that, when you try somebody else's idea, you have to have the, um, you have to have the honesty to actually admit when it works. It's really easy to say, don't come into this with too much ego. Um, and it's almost impossible to execute on. <laughs> you do, you need a very, very healthy ego to be working in this industry, right? Because um, game design is, a navigation of this impossible sea of uh, of open possibility and uh, and cause and effect, right? That almost that most nobody can see. You need a clear vision and a determination and confidence in your in your vision to uh, filter all feedback. That comes from ego. So you need that in order to be a successful designer. Being able to let go of that just enough to let uh, to let other ideas in and to let other ideas influence you is tough. It absolutely is tough. And if it's not tough, 
if it's not tough for you, I, I would arguably say that you don't have enough ego. You should actually be working on building it up a little bit. Yeah, that's really, it's really uh, a fascinating uh, way to present the problem because, you know, everybody understands and intellectually, you know, that ego uh, is a challenge and ego gets in the way, um, but it's much harder emotionally to be able to know when it is the thing that's in the way or when it's the drive that's going to get you across the finish line, right? When it's the thing that's pushing right. you forward. And that's what right. I found is if you have enough emotional awareness, at least self-awareness to sort of know, are you a, you know, sort of typically dominant person in the room, right? Where you're talking more than you're listening, where you're generally your ideas are spoken loudly and moving forward, then you need to go above and beyond on the flip side, which is to say constantly, you know, actively pause in the room, let other people talk before you say anything, restate other people's positions before you state your own, couch your own language with things that are like, well, it seems to me I might be wrong, but like actively put those words yeah. in the into your parlance, even if it doesn't sound right to you at first, training yourself to speak that way, training yourself to pause more, training yourself to reflect more will help to surface those other ideas in really powerful ways. And absolutely. Actually the second yeah, sorry, Justin didn't interrupt you, but the the second the second point that you made there, the, the core of Socratic dialogue um, is to, to state your um, to state your your uh, colleague's position in your own words so that they understand it um, is uh, is not only good, it's essential in my opinion. It's actually the core of all of our conversations. So I, I do it all the time. Yes. Right, like, hey, let me let me restate your point so I understand. That. Yes, um, because even by doing that, you're at, even if um, it also this, what's important here is it protects their ego as well. Yes, right, because um, even if you disagree and you're adding something to it and you're morphing it, as you're giving it back to them, it's still their position. Yeah, and they get credit, and they're getting the social credit for it, which is very important. Yes, hundred percent. And 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 I think you know to 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 sort of emphasize it further, what we do what we call uh, uh, steel manning. Right, which is not only should I be, mm, not yeah. only should I be stating you know stating your position back to you, I should be stating it back in a way that is even stronger and making it better, right? So the, as opposed right. to straw manning, where which is very common, where people will just state the other person's position in right. some you know like loose way that is easy to refute. Here, you want to make the other person's position as strong as possible to then be able to have a discussion around it. And that's and, right in the in the band or collaborative dynamics. Sorry, yeah. Ben. Um, but in the blender or dynamic, a great stop to that, right? Um, it, uh, uh, like there's a there's a there's a silver bullet to uh, when you're when you're on the receiving end of that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, there's two. One is really uh, one is really aggressive. I've used it sometimes, not too often, right? Which is like, hey, if I just say you're right, will you shut up? <laughs> um, <that's>, <laughs> um, but the it's uh, super aggressive. I don't necessarily, uh, I, I, if, if you need to, that's your like fight. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's but, that, that one might, the only response there is, you know, punch somebody in the face after that. So that's a tough spot. <laughs> right. But, but the, the other one is also aggressive, but I found it's very effective. If you're on the receiving end of that, I've usually said like, um, just a quick, are you, um, are we creating, or are you just trying to win an argument? Um, and that usually, that usually at least, Obviously, you can only do it with people that you're familiar, comfortable with, and have a lot of respect for. Um, I've had it used on me, and it, it stops me in my tracks, right? And it, it does it it does help you recalibrate the conversation and keep your momentum. So, 
I I think those are useful tools, although they are certainly uh, blunt force objects uh, to some degree. Oh yeah, oh that's me. I, I, <laughs> I might uh, the uh, maybe a slightly uh, subtler, more uh, more judo uh, way to approach the problem uh, <laughs> that I like is is focus on principles, not positions. Um, if sure. you zoom out a bit from the hey, I think this mechanic should be this way. I think this mechanic should be this way, and arguing over the specifics, like okay, wait, let's back up. What are the things we care about here? Right. What are we trying to get at? Right. right. Okay. I really want player choice to be more meaningful here. I really want there to be more variance in the outcome. I want more, whatever, right. You go into the, like the principles behind what's going on. And very often that can unlock. It moves from I'm on this side of the table and you're on that side of the table and we're arguing to, Hey, we're both on this same side of the table trying to analyze this problem, uh, which can help really reframe and, and get the egos out of the way a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And usually the um, and the, the greatest point about working collaboratively, especially with a, like a great team like the one we have, um, is we get to the point you're talking about right now. We get to that point very quickly, yes. right? Where even when we're arguing, we get to that point. The, 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 sometimes where it gets a little aggressive, what I was talking about, is when you're at that point and then you, you, uh, you actually start to misalign on vision a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, and that happens a lot during uh, late stage development. Right when you're uh, looking for when you're troubleshooting, you're looking for specific problems to solve, and then uh, diagnosing and also uh, attempting a cure. Right, which is, geez, God, we could talk for hours on that. Yes, yes. Well, then that's and that's really great because like we spent you know a lot of time talking about the sort of early phases of design and where sort of the concept comes from and how you start bringing that together. But you know these sort of later phases are are in you know there that's where the rubber meets the road in so many ways. You know these little. Oh, yeah. you know, these kinds of trade-offs and decisions that, you know, ground level, you know, everything from, you know, what's the wound mechanic here to does this guy get it cost two or three, you know, can have these like rapid, you know, like cascading effects on everything that you've done before uh, and how you resolve those decisions. I, I think I think it does all tie back because you've got to be able to know what's your lodestone. You've got to be able to sort of have those principles up front to help guide you. But in many ways, it's trench warfare, man. There are no, there's no, there's no rubric answer. It's, 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 it's all, it's all it's, on the ground level. Well, so sometimes, sometimes, and this is, I'm, I'm sure this happened to you too. Sometimes uh, later stage development does expose fundamental cracks in your game um, that, uh, right. Which is, uh, uh, my, uh, one of my young developers, Leo Almeida, he calls it burden of knowledge for players, which is a great encapsulation of that issue, right? Where once a player has uh, broken through the matrix in your game and realized, um, that, uh, realized a particular play pattern that is actually dominant, it is very difficult for those players to go back and enjoy the game the way it was before. So the, what our internal phrase is, does this game survive burden of knowledge, mm. right? Um, and the... Um, it sometimes those the cracks that it exposes actually do um and have um required a realigning of vision sure. right because uh, at the end of the day right game development i mean the, the game development isn't um it isn't only about solving problems it's about deciding what problems are you are going to solve and what bugs are acceptable because <laughs> um, there's no such thing as perfect it's not a bug it's a feature right <laughs> absolutely absolutely right because so um, I have an exercise I do um, with designers very often um, when they're when they're pitching me a game, either from outside or or not. As I ask them um, to, especially if I like the game, we're we're past that phase. We're at the uh, we're now going to work together and figure out how to develop this. Uh, I'd like you to write me, you the designer, to write me a go go write me a board game geek review 
of this game, a short review, like a couple paragraphs of somebody who rated the game an eight, and then write me a, a review of somebody who rated the game a four. Oh, that's wonderful. And they, and they both have to be, in t- they, they both must be plausible written by people. Um, it's a, it's a good, uh, cause it, it's, it's too shorthand, I find, to say, like, who is this game for and who is it not for? By forcing them to go through the exercise of writing the review from the point of view of a real human being, it, it gets them, it forces them to dive a little deeper into that. That is a wonderful tactic. Cause yes, that, that, you know, that's just a great way of encapsulating. Cause that principle, you know, who is your game for? Who's your core target audience? And who do you not want it to be for? Is, Absolutely right. critical, but it's very hard for people to sort of a go through that exercise at all, right? Everybody wants their game to be loved by right. everyone, or b to bring ah, that's BS. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, which is just like it means you're not really trying, you're not you're not actually doing your job, and and right. and then but even further is to really personify and make that come to life. Like when I talk about in I talk about this, I say like you know really picture the actual person that you want this game to appeal right. to. Like like give them like a name and like what else do they do with their day? What other games are they playing right now what do they hate right and so i like try to make that part really like make a real person um but this is a really mm-hmm. wonderful way of like writing the review out at these tiers gives you you know it's not and it's not the 10 and the and the two you know it's not the like this is garbage you don't know what you're doing you should die or or, or this is the best game i've ever played it's these you know good high ratings but thoughtful or you know no this is not for me and here's why and forcing those reasons right. is, is a wonderful tactic i'm absolutely going to incorporate this for some of my games i love it absolutely yeah eight, eight and four are very important numbers i've actually if i i play tested this right? <laughs> um, they 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 do they um they those two that th- those two pairings and of course using BGG as a reference right um but those two pairings do remove hyperbole from the table without you having to say that mm-hmm. right um which is uh, which is good but also um and again we're saying we're, we're revealing too many tricks on podcasts but it's also sort of a low key interview question um because when working with the designer it also gives me a, a a sense of their intellectual honesty right or and their emotional honesty. Uh, some people are just not capable, are not capable of writing before. Um, and that's, that's a, it's a pretty good uh, key indicator for me to figure out how difficult they're going to be to work with. Yeah. And that's, and that, you know, just tying into our previous discussion about how the, you know, having those, having debates, right. The process of working on a design team is a constant clash, right? You're just constantly oh, smashing ideas into each other. You're constantly, you know, debating things. And if you, are in a room of people that are all, you know, intellectually honest, genuinely trying to make the best project and willing to sort of self-analyze and able to self-analyze, then that, that conversation and that process can be a joy. If you don't have that, mm-hmm. it's hell. I, I mean, it, right. and, I've, and I've made this mistake too. I mean, you know, there have been various times where I've had a very talented team of people who collectively were way worse than they would have been individually because the egos and the things, and you know, a lot, a lot of lessons had to get learned the hard way. And again, I take, I take as much blame for that as anybody. Uh, and I had, to, I had to get a lot more intellectually honest and, and it takes sometimes some, some big failures and some big mistakes to get that lesson drilled in. So hopefully the people that have stayed with us this long are, are able to learn from our mistakes uh, and, 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 and take that tar- hard look. Unfortunately, most won't, but some will. <laughs> Of course. Well, it's music again, right? You're in a band, right? And and it's it's um, not every like chemistry matters, right? And I I do I really do believe it's alchemical, right? There is um it's it, you have to you got to get in there and you got to figure out if you have chemistry. I've worked with many different designers, many incredibly talented designers. I thought I would we would we would work great together, and we did not and we did not at all. 
we've remained friends and we're, we have tons of respect for each other. We just did not click at all. And we had to, we had to get in there and work together to figure that out. Um, and I've also had uh, collaborations that I thought were going to be like, weren't going to work at all that were amazing. Uh, and it's just, it's pure chemistry. And it's, it's, it's all based on do the two of you, um, do the two of you generate more excitement between you as a result of your interactions, excitement, uh, excitement, um, and a positive feedback loop than you would working apart. Okay. Well, if you really were going to make an offer to do a collab together, that would be a great time, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, maybe we have chemistry. I mean, you know, I'd love to work. Yeah, with no, you. I, um, I, I think that would be a dream. I think we got to make it happen. I, uh, and even if we don't, it, it's, we'll learn a lot it, along the way. A, we can have a follow up. Absolutely. We can have a follow up podcast of a uh, post mortem of uh, the great game slash disaster, whatever comes out of it. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, so, I, no, sorry, go ahead. Um, if you don't mind, I just want to tell you real quick um, uh, because I, I, um, to keep this a little less abstract, um, uh, and I'm, uh, I apologize to my uh, everybody who works with me knows I'm going to say this stuff publicly anyway. So. I'll name two collaborations, right? I, I worked with uh, Mike Elliott on several games and uh, worked Rob W uh, on a recent game. Um, Rob is the guy that I thought, uh, we worked, by the way, our, uh, we worked on a big Kickstarter game, uh, Death May Die, worked great, and we worked well together, uh, just in a completely different way than I thought. Um, we, end up, we, had to have, we had some real issues at the beginning of our um, working relationship because we were too similar. Interesting. Um, our excitement came from the same places. Our backgrounds were similar. We were both, uh, we were both sort of, uh, well, I'm a wannabe writer. Rob's an actual writer. Um, and we, uh, we, we just spent most of the, uh, of the early parts of our design process just telling each other stories and getting uh, just out pretension, uh, out pretensioning each other <laughs> with, with, with all these cool themes and subtext or little stories and, 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 um, at some point, we, we fell into a dynamic where I actually became the cold mechanical guy, um, and, and Rob became the, the guy who was going to inject the soul into it. And by um, we had to carve those roles for ourselves. Um, that, and that that's a role I almost never take in a in a in a collaboration. But once we found that yin yang, um, it, it, uh, what we had was amazing. Um, but we found it over time uh, from uh, some frustration. Uh, Mike Elliott is the type of designer, um, incredibly brilliant guy. I'm sure everybody who listens to this know who's, knows who he is. He's the smartest guy in the room, every room he goes into. Um, he's so smart, it's intimidating. Um, he's blunt, even more blunt than me. Um, he's, he does not suffer fools. He kills ideas all the time and doesn't get attached to anything. That's tough to work with. Um, I heard about his reputation when I first started working with him. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to work with this uh, with this guy because in those type of situations, I tend to beta, even though I'm actually, I'm creatively an alpha. Um, so we worked together and it, uh, when we started working on Couriers, which are our first game, again, overnight in one phone call, the core system came together. It was just, it was electric and amazing. Um, I couldn't believe it. Um, and we've worked on like three games since. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, so that's you, awesome. you, you never know. Yeah. 
no, you never know. I love, I love collaboration, especially I really do like collaborating with people who are very, very different from me um, and who bring right. a very different energy and experience and attitude. I have a, this game's not come out yet, but the, I, I, I collaborated uh, with Mike Selinker on uh, what is sort of our spiritual successor to uh, betrayal at house on the hill, uh, Hyde society. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, it's uh, I don't know when we're going to actually release it, but it was really cool because Mike is such a, you know, story driven, puzzle driven, like very creative, very abstract kind of thinker on a lot of these things. And I'm very kind of more granular, more mechanical, more, you know, direct. Uh, and, uh, and that clash of the two, uh, it made me a better designer. I mean, it, it created a lot of challenges for sure, uh, you know, in, in learning how to communicate and, and, and stylize, but I absolutely um, learned a lot and was able to, we created something that neither of us would have ever created originally. So it's, uh, I, I really enjoy that process. And, and again, so much of this is about, you know, I sort of said earlier in the podcast, you know, at the beginning, your job should be learning. And also at the end, your job should be learning. You know, now it's, it's, it's exactly the thing that like what motivates, you know, when you, you talked about sort of, you know, avoiding irrelevancy, uh, you know, or, or kind of you know, being able, that is involving learning, constantly trying to find new things and, and explore and push your own boundaries. And that's, you know, it's a part, big part of why I started the podcast, right? Because I can kind of have these types of conversations where, yeah, you and I would talk design but the, to be able to dedicate now nearly two hours, and I apologize, we've been running over uh, because we're all oh, so wow. excited about this discussion uh, and and can dig in and learn more things. Is, is just, it's great. It keeps me excited and keeps me like, oh, okay, now I'm going to make this thing and now I'm going to try this trick and now I'm going to have my team do that, you know, board game geek review exercise. And, uh, you know, so it's awesome. And, and I really appreciate, uh, you know, you taking the time here. And, and I know, I know we share that same passion. So it, it's great to get to share that with you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'd like, so I tell you, like one of um, one of the few pieces of advice I give to people, because I, I try not to give too much blanket advice anymore. Um, but uh, listen to podcasts like this. Like the, uh, I, I personally, uh, I'm going to plug your podcast for you. It's amazing. Um, I um, so like there were bits in there. I mean, of course, you have some of the greatest designers in the world. Um, but there are bits in there that really stuck with me, like a good bit from stand up. Right. That just they keep coming back over and over and over again. Um, I remember that there's, um, uh, when you got Richard Garfield up, I was like, oh man, he's going to say all the, all the clever things that I could ever think of anyway. You don't need me anymore. Right. right? <laughs> but, um, but Richard and I share something that I didn't even realize how much we shared it until we brought it up in your podcast, which was his belief that a lot of modern games are overdeveloped. Um, I, I share that intrinsically. I probably feel even more strongly about it than he does, um, about the, the, their, their what I mean is that uh, when I say that overdeveloped, like developed to a uh, too far toward a median experience uh, and away from the highs and lows, like the extreme highs and extreme lows that make games memorable. Yep. Um, and I absolutely believe that to be true. Um, uh, and it's it gets me in trouble sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd rather that than play it safe. Well, yeah, and and it, and I we didn't get a chance to dig into it back when you were talking about it. But when you know you talked about this is another thing Richard brought up when you talk about the burden of knowledge and sort of what happens in the to your play experience as you you know discover more and and maybe find degenerate strategies or whatever. You know, Richard talked about something that I thought was really powerful. It's like, who are you developing for? Right? Is it is it the right. new player? Is it the super sophisticated player? Is it somewhere in between? If you have to make trade offs, where do those trade offs go? What should the should the you know sh where should that sort of balance and optimal experience be? And you know, I didn't have a 
good answer for that. You know, of course you want to make it good for everybody, but again, just like you're trying to make the game great for, you know, great for all people, that's also not, that's also a non-answer. And, and, and the trade-offs of focusing on the high end player and making their, you know, the person who knows everything still be very interested is going to come with a trade off that the first experiences are not going to be as, uh, you know, they will be more opaque a lot of the time. There'll be more challenges there. So it's, 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 well, absolutely. So so I can make a bold statement about this, which I'm sure some of your uh, listeners will disagree with, but I stick to it. There is absolute tension between, um, between those two, um, between those two player experience, like absolute uh, push and pull. Um, And the, the choices that you make, um, for the sophisticated player who's uh, who is motivated in the most pure game theory sense to win rationally using more skill than luck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to develop a game to create the most um, uh, fair, median, experience, challenging experience for that player, the magic spike, mm-hmm. as it were, but the advanced magic spike, the player who's going to play it the 50th time, the decisions you make to, to deepen that experience and to continue... Um, uh, to continue the, the the hockey stick of that curve going up are absolutely in contrast with game uh, unless your game is pure abstract like go or chess are, are in direct contrast with the game's uh, decision that you will make to make the game accessible fun and well fun uh accessible dramatic uh, and memorable for those first few players um the i, I think it is absolutely imperative that somewhere in your mind that you have a sort of a, an idea of the statute of limitations of your game. How many games is your game going to last before you near the end of that hockey stick? Um, we, I know we talk in legacy games that kind of, it's kind of obvious, right? It's obviously not replayable, but I think you have to be okay. You just have to be okay with going, you know what? You've mastered this game after X number of plays. Do you, how conscious um, is that I, process for you when you're making games? Do you think, you know, this is it, like probably a, this is probably a, a 20, 30, 30 replay game. This is a, not in never in early design yeah. in late design in, in development because i'm always uh, I'm, I'm very seldom the final developer but i'm always present mm-hmm. um, i'm there to be the counterweight right because because uh, developers no matter how good they are will will make decisions often that go against uh, again because of burden of knowledge they will that will compromise um some of the drama from that first player game in subtle oh, ways yes. right sometimes they'll add too much text yeah Right? They'll add too much clarifying text. They'll add too much. Um, I mean, they won't all ha- add hacks, but they will to a degree. Right? Little hacks, little death by a thousand cuts. Right? And yes, uh, I've got to be the counterweight to say, nope, it's too much. Yep. This is this is exactly the trap I fell into when I first started designing and developing games. I was, you know, I came from as a Magic Pro player. I started working on the versus system trading card game. So of course, you know, when you're a pro player, your job is to just break everything. Right? Your job is to find the thing that's yep. broken and then just exploit, exploit, exploit. And so when I became a developer i was like well okay i'm just gonna remove all the exploits i'm I'm i can do that and it just Mm -hmm. it just sucks the soul out of the game (laughs) and it it was not until after you know a couple years i really that lesson really got drilled home to me uh and and it's a common it's a common problem out there because you want to show how clever you are and you want to you know make that the better player is going to win more often and that is just not the the most important goal uh and so it's it's a key a key lesson i had to have battered battered into my skull (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there's a weird thing um, that, I mean, even, even d- uh, top end developers, right. Um, they could, uh, I would give them the advice to just go listen to streamers, right. Um, uh, go Like there's, um, there's a whole ecosystem of streamers for every kind of game. 
right? But uh, you and I come from, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're very familiar with Hearthstone. Um, they, they have one of the most uh, mature and sophisticated uh, streamer ecosystems, but just spend some time and really listen to them. Listen to the way that those streamers analyze cards. The ones that are the most compelling, the ones that have the biggest audiences are very seldom the top players, right? They're the one, but they're the ones who uh, they've just, as I would say, and early in podcast, they've developed the ear. They know intrinsically what, uh, they have enough skill to be able to be good at the game, but they know what's fun and they know what's, go um, and they know what's compelling. And the way that they, when they do their uh, sneak preview, preview reveal season, when they talk about what cards are good and what cards are not, they talk about the cards that are, um, what's well, right, one of the most common criticisms they give to cards. Uh, well, this card is fair. I'm not going to play it. Huh. Right? Um, and so much of exceptions-based games, which are the types of games you and I make um, the most of, it's about uh, even I try, I strive still today to make cards that even if they are fair, to feel unfair. Yes. Well, that's your. That's actually the best. That's that's right. the secret, right? If you, the, the more you can make it feel like, oh, when somebody sees a card, their eyes bug out and it feels like such a big deal when they play and feels so impactful. But in fact, there's a balance underneath it all. That's that's the that's the dream in my mind, where you can kind of get that right. emotional high without upending the system. Right. And unfortunately, most of that balance comes from counterweight. Yep. Right from comes from metagame counterweight, yes. and to and there's a there's there are players who don't accept that, um, and those are the players who will write the four in your review. Yeah, yes, they will. Uh, I I I'm I'm so confident we could spend many many more hours doing this. I've I've already overrun. I've already overrun the time I, I promised I would cut us off. So I'm gonna I want to I want to bring this one to a close with a for sure promise of uh, let's do another one uh, post our upcoming uh, yet to be created uh, collaboration. Uh, <laughs> I dig it. Sounds like a deal. Um, in the meantime, for those that want to find more of your awesome stuff, whether that be, uh, you know, on the webs or the games, where should they go? Oh man, I am so bad at this. Um, so I technically have a website that I haven't updated <laughs> for three years. <laughs> um, uh, ericmlang.com. You, you can find some stuff in there. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, I'm what is my I think Twitter? It's Eric oh, underscore Lang, if I'm not mistaken. That's me. Yeah. As a, um, I'm very active on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, just a warning: uh, it is a personal, it is a personal, not a corporate account. Um, I'm 100% unfiltered on that account. So I, I also talk about politics and uh, and social issues and stuff like that. But I do try to center it on games. Um, you can, uh, I do web content sometimes for, uh, for come on. If you go to our website, a lot of developer articles for my games are written by me. Um, other than that, I'm mostly most of the grindstone. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's great to see you, uh, always, uh, creating awesome new things and, and facing those, uh, scary challenges. Uh, I, I, you really have been, uh, you know, one of the designers I've admired the most over the years and, and love all of your work. Uh, it's, it's super rare for me that I will play games that I'm not working on just for fun. Uh, and yours, uh, come to the table probably more often than, than, than any other designer, not counting, you know, magic and Richard. Uh, uh, and so that's, that's, it's very high praise. And I think you're, you're, you're awesome. And wow. I really appreciate the time. That's humbling, dude. Thank yep. you. All right, man. That's it. We're going to call it a wrap. Thank you so much for being here, buddy. Uh, thanks, Justin. Talk to you next time. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. But before you go, I just want to make one little plug here for Ascension Tactics. 
If you're listening to this, the Ascension Tactics Kickstarter is launching on July 7th. You can right now go to stoneblade.com forward slash tactics to get a direct update. You can sign up for our email list, get behind the scenes information, and follow the Kickstarter to be able to get notified the moment we launch. Or if you're listening to this a little late and we've already launched, you can go straight to Kickstarter, find the game, support it, back it, check out all the cool stuff. I've tried to apply all the lessons I've learned from this podcast and all that I've done over a decade of making Ascension and the decade before that of working on games to make the coolest, most awesome thing that I can. Uh, I really put all my heart and soul into it, just like I do with this podcast and everything I try to do for you guys. So if you can go check it out, follow us on Kickstarter, back the project or share it, it would mean a lot that you will really enjoy that project as much as I enjoyed making it. So thank you guys again. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.